For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. going to be the last episode for the Red Hood series, and I wish that we could give out the name of the person that did this. Yeah. I wish that we could say we have DNA results back from Elizabeth in regards to if her mom matches the Jane Doe found in Barbara's book. I also wish that we were able to identify more of the victims. I know. Unfortunately. Yeah. This is where, just a little side conversation. How long have you been working on Sister Kathy's murder? Let's see. Over five years. Over yeah, five so a years. a long time. And even some before that, when I worked with Tom Nugent on his story, Who Killed Sister Kathy, in 2006, I did some digging around and was able to locate some Keogh alumni friends that knew more information and was able to share that with him. So when we decided to jump in again, which has been five years, we had a few things to go on, but not much. So I understand what you're saying, but I think enough information, you've given everything out to everybody and you've tried to cover every single individual. And I think even though there doesn't appear to be anything else to explore, it doesn't mean that we're turning away from it. You just shared an email with me today from someone who said they might know somebody who also had red hair and was murdered. So I think it makes sense to not beat a dead horse, which is a poor choice of words. But I think it's probably time to sit back and see what else comes our way. Yeah, I agree. And I think that hearing what you had to say, 
it took from in your case, Sister Kathy's murder, you've been on the case for five years and still you don't have a positive answer on who is responsible for Sister Kathy's murder. And by positive, we don't have DNA evidence or a conviction. So that that does give me hope in this case. And you are right. There's been several weeks now where I've been contemplating how to end the series just because from a podcasting standpoint, we've done what we could and we've talked to who we could talk to and we've put out the information but now we're at a standstill on information that I can still release that's new. Correct. Wouldn't it be great if in a few months or in a year or so we could revisit this because we have more to share? I um, think that's a great idea. Since you took it on, I, no pressure, but I think that would be our responsibility. That if something else happens, that we could add new information. There's people waiting. There's people whose mothers or daughters were murdered. And they don't know who did it. And something might happen that will point us in the right direction. And it would be wonderful if we have Elizabeth's DNA in the not-too-distant future to at least... So this is six, seven, or eight cases. It's not just one case, because we don't absolutely know that the same person did it. So if we can tie up one person at a time, with identities and more information about what happened to them, then I think we're helping those families or the people that lost somebody and we might find the right person. Yeah, I think that through this series, we sparked interest in the case and interest in all of these women who most of them don't have even a name. They're just North Jane Doe's in the county from which they're from. Right. So I think that in part, when I look back on what we've accomplished within this series, we've talked about all of the victims we've shared. We've gotten podcast listeners and people from all over the world to take time out of their day to listen to the stories about these women. We've highlighted what it's like to be a prostitute or what, you know, the society's norm for, oh, she may have deserved this, to where... I hope that all the work we did will one day lead to a conviction or lead to them identifying these women. I also am reminded of the crosses that have been put up. I couldn't have done that without the help from listeners. And of course, I also met along this journey, the teacher, Alex, and all of his students who, you know, both you and I spoke to Alex and his students, and we stay in touch with a few of the students. So that was a very cool thing that when I started the series, and I don't know about you, Gemma, but I never would have imagined working with a high school class. No, I wouldn't either. But think about, that's such a rich experience for you and them. And the fact that you were able to have a press conference where the kids shared information, you were able to talk to a lot of media people in the town and law enforcement. So there are people that have this not on their back burner anymore. Shane, could you, yeah, could you take a minute for your listeners to summarize what you did find out or what you do know about each one of the women who were murdered? Yeah, that's a great idea because there's still one that I want to touch on slightly. We'll start with the very first one that I visited, and this is the only one out of the six that 
we have a name for. This victim was Lisa Nichols. She was found in West Memphis, Arkansas, just right over the Tennessee border from Memphis. Her body was found on September 16, 1984, along I-40 near Chevereville, and she was found ultimately by a hitchhiker. There is a cross at that location. Something that's very interesting about Lisa's case is she is the only known victim. However, and Gemma, I'm not sure that I've shared this with you, so buckle up. While we were putting together the press conference and working with Alex and the kids, Alex spoke to the sheriff who is in charge of the county that Lisa was found in. During his phone call conversation, he was actually inviting the sheriff to join the press conference that we had at the high school in Elizabethton. Mm -hmm. And when he spoke to the sheriff, was expressing to him that he had no idea who he was talking about. They do not have a victim named Lisa Nichols in his files. They don't have anything on her. They don't have a Jane Doe at that location. Wow. Um, yeah. So he had no idea what he was referring to. And so Alex was very professional and polite. And he's like, this is where she was found. This is all the information we have. Uh -huh. The sheriff said, give him a few days. He wants to look into it and find out where her file is because he's never heard of it. So it's not an active case. So a few days later, Alex gets a phone call. And it's the sheriff. And come to find out, her murder file, her murder case was misplaced. And oh, I don't believe it was, yeah, I don't believe it was his fault because as a sheriff, you're voted into office. But it, it seems like for a long time, that just somewhere along the line, this case for Lisa disappeared. So wow. what that told us is that no one has been looking at her case for all this mm -hmm. time. But Lisa is the only person who we can give a name to at this time. How ironic and sad is it that she is also the one that they didn't have a file for the people who right. are responsible for looking at her case and finding out who did this? I guess um, it also, yeah, it also points out, Shane, that in small towns like this, someone who is a prostitute or somebody who is not important in the town or who doesn't have family that's looking for them are likely to end up on the bottom of the pile. And thank goodness that you asked, because now I hope they've retrieved her files. So we don't even know if she has family. Is that correct? So first off, you are absolutely correct. When I spoke with Alex, we both expressed to each other that if we wouldn't have connected and we wouldn't have done this press conference and we wouldn't have reached out to the sheriff's department, it never would have happened. No one ever would have looked again at Lisa Nichols' file. It would forever be cold. So that's something to that I want to put out for anyone who questions podcasters or any amateur investigating like that on if what they're doing is helpful or hurtful to cases. I want everyone to point back to Lisa Nichols' case because if we wouldn't have done what we did and starting this whole entire journey with this series and working with Alex and the students and they wouldn't have gone through their own journey to get to where we got no one would be looking at Lisa's case. Hopefully, so, yeah, those students, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're okay. Those students have moved on, 
right? They graduated, correct? Or they went on to the next year of school, but that you've just exponentially multiplied the number of people that are aware of this case and how we get addicted to certain cases and true crime. Those kids aren't going to leave it alone. I have a feeling a whole bunch of those kids were looking into it this summer in their, quote, free time. So it does send a message to people when you can get together with a group of, especially of kids, how much the community and how much grassroots really can work. Exactly. And one of the cool things that Alex and I spoke about is something that he would like to do is contact different high schools in these areas where each of the victims were found and see if they're willing to let a class take over and try to work on that individual file. So I think that's a very interesting concept as well. But yeah, near the end of this episode, I have some things that I think will be really cool to hear that Alex sent me. It's going to be a little surprise, so I'll save it for the end. Okay. But going back to Lisa, when the sheriff was able to recover her file, he told us some interesting things. One of the things is they did locate a sister in Ohio. Now, he couldn't tell us if the sister came to West Memphis, what if the sister, we don't know anything about the sister. All that we know is they did locate a sister who helped identify her. And this would have been about a year after she was found murdered because she was a Jane Doe until a year later. We also found something else out. So according to their files, Lisa had a daughter. She had a young daughter at the time that she was murdered. And we were given the name of the little girl, but there is no record of her anymore. So the sheriff isn't sure what happened to her. We're not sure if she was taken. We're not sure if she was murdered. We are not sure if she was put into adoption prior. We're not sure if the sister took her and they changed her name. There's just a lot of unanswered questions that hopefully the sheriff can now try to sift through. One of the things that I'm hopeful for in this case is Lisa was, I believe, the second victim of this killer. So I'm hoping that if they're just now realizing that they're in charge of her murder case, I'm hoping that they'll re-examine any evidence they may have for her. They may trace back some things and re-question people. So that could possibly lead to a break in this series of cases. So that's something good that has mm-hmm. happened throughout the series. Going to the very first victim, it was what the last episode that we spoke to. And remember, we spoke to Kayla, who was one of Alex's students, just right. because she had family from West Virginia. And this victim is the Wetzel County Jane Doe. It was found by an elderly couple. They had spotted what they believed was an unclothed mannequin laying face down in snow. They found her over a hill near U.S. Route 250 at around noon on Sunday, February 13th, 1983. That area was known as a place that people would dump trash because mm-hmm. you could pull a vehicle or pull a semi or anything like that over really quick if you needed to, which is also something similar to the victim. She was found near a place where people would dump trash. The victim that was found closest to the school that I went and did the press conference, that victim, there is a cross there as well. It's the Green County, Jane Doe. 
Uh-huh. And this is in Tennessee. On April 14th, 1985, she was located beside southbound Geraldston exit I-81 in Greene County. 15-year-old found her because she was, I guess the 15-year-old was fishing near that exit and discovered the body. So there is a cross at that location as well. Going a little through Knoxville and up north, we get to a victim that I haven't spoken a lot about yet. There is a cross at this location, and it's right near the Tennessee-Kentucky border, near Pioneer, Tennessee. She's known as the Campbell County. Jane Doe, on January 1st, 1985, she was found near an embankment off the shoulder of the southbound lane on I-75. That The city's town is actually... The Follett, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that, but the exit, and this is something that's pretty interesting. I was told by some locals there that the exit that I put the cross is leading you to a town where Marilyn Monroe grew up. It's a very, it's a very poor town, or it was known for. But I thought that was something very interesting that I had no idea about. And then if you did that. She's found right off of 75, and if you go north on 75 into Kentucky, near the Corbin exit, it's not that far. Then you'll come to the exit for 25E, and this is where the Knox County Jane Doe was found. This is the one that I refer to as the Jane Doe that was found in Barberville, because the town is Barberville. And of course, we know that this is the victim who we believe is Elizabeth's mom, and we're waiting for DNA. We've been waiting for a long time, and I've gotten a lot of listeners and people questioning if we've heard anything. We haven't. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective. In the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. We have been given different time periods that we could expect to hear things back in all of those tasks. Now when we contact the Kentucky State Police, we're just told that it could be any day. We don't have a certain date to look at anymore. Correct. Yeah, and I know that I've spoken to you, Jim, about this, but why don't you talk just briefly about what you know about DNA because of your experience with Mr. Kathy? I 
never really understood why DNA takes so long and why its amounts of time were so inconsistent. So I actually did some online research, read a lot of different articles about it. And one reason is something you brought up, Shane, is that at times it's done periodically. For example, if someone's DNA is collected in January and the state or the federal government is running that DNA for that quarter of the year, January, February, March, then it might come back quickly. But if they miss the deadline to submit it, it could take six months. The other thing I read is that there are so many different scientists with different skills that are involved in the processing of DNA that it's not a backlog, but let's say the DNA is collected, the government or the agency has to wait until a batch, B-A-T-C-H, of DNA samples are available to even run the test. I don't know if that's because of budget or because they need to have comparison figures, but they don't just process one DNA sample all the way through. That would never happen. And then once the batch is processed, then that waits for the next scientist who's going to use different algorithms and all different kind of scientific equations to determine exactly what the DNA is saying. And then that would go on to another scientist who has another job. So for your listeners that are into that kind of thing and that are, have been questioning it, because Elizabeth's DNA was taken in November. And so we're already in September here. So soon it will be a year and they still don't have anything back. But in Sister Kathy's case, I've heard that the DNA took eight months or somebody else it took seven months. So I think it's hard to predict. And a lot of it is out of control of the local law enforcement agency that submitted the DNA in the first place. Yep. And I think that everything that you said is something that all of our listeners will appreciate and get a better understanding on why it's taking so long. I know that this is frustrating for the detectives. I know that because we have a lot of people who keep messaging them and calling and asking, rightfully wants to know, and the entire city of Barberville wants to know, and because they've been so attached to this Chengdu for so long, ultimately this is a waiting game. And it's had, but in another aspect, it's, I know that I've spoken with the detectives in charge with the Kentucky State Police of this Chengdu, and I do believe that they are equally wanting answers. Going to Elizabeth's mom, who, again, we believe this is her, When I speak to Elizabeth, I know that there's not a lot of work being done on her mom's disappearance side of things. And one of the things that if the DNA results come back, that this is her mom, then more work can be done with the Kentucky State Police looking into how did her mom end up at this location and all of that. This DNA we're we're waiting on and a long wait, but we're hoping that this is another huge break in the case. None of these victims have been identified for more than 30 years, minus Lisa Nichols in the beginning. So this would be a huge 
opportunity for the case to be revisited and right. reinvestigated. And there's been so much advancement in DNA that hopefully within all six of these victims, if they go back to examine the things that they have, hopefully there is DNA there that they can take and then go test. So I'm very hopeful with that case. Of course, that Jane Doe that was found in Barberville was found in a fridge. The MO's Slightly was different than the other ones, mainly because there was a, the killer attempted to hide her in a fridge, and that wasn't the case for the other ones. But something that you and I discussed previously, I still wouldn't dismiss this victim from this serial killer. Mm-hmm. The reason is because something may have switched or changed to where he felt like he had to kill her close to where he picked her up. And, of course, we know that she was seen at the King Station, which is right down the road. We spoke to Bruce, who was an eyewitness. And I believe Bruce, and I do believe that the killer, something happened when she was in the car. And she took off and she started running. And then he went after her. He probably freaked out and saw the fridge and thought of an opportunity to hide her because he was so close and that was something that he hadn't done previously. I wouldn't dismiss that. The last victim, go ahead. Go ahead, Gemma. The other thing we didn't talk about with that case is that oftentimes serial killers, they feel guilt over what they've done. And there may have been some reason that he wanted to cover her up. We learned about Sister Kathy being covered with a raincoat and... Although she had some clothing on, whoever left her there threw a raincoat over her as a last, I don't know, symbol of something or a last gesture. And for this one, I've thought about this woman in the refrigerator. It's also possible that he tried to kill her and she didn't die. And maybe another truck stopped. And he had to do something quickly and perhaps putting her in a refrigerator where she would be asphyxiated before too long was something he did because he panicked because maybe somebody else was pulling up and he had to do something quickly and get out of there. Yeah, that's a really good point. Something that I hadn't quite thought of. I've been there at the location where she was found. I could definitely see if his truck was stopped and another trucker may have stopped and make sure he didn't need help. And he quickly throws her into the fridge and was like, yeah, I was up here using the bathroom. Everything's good. I could definitely see it. Is the... Go ahead. Is that all six? No, we have one more. Okay. Near Nashville, which of course, Nashville is where you and I went to CrimeCon at earlier this year. Just north of Nashville. This is the Cheatham County, Jane Doe. She was found on March 31st, 1985. She was found beside the westbound I-24 in Cheatham County, which is, like I said, north of Nashville, between mile markers 29 and 30. That is all six victims. Now, I will say something that I did find out about the victim that I hadn't spoken about previously, the Campbell County, of course, this is the Jane Doe, who is north of Knoxville, south of Barberville, where the other Jane Doe was found. And this is the one that I mentioned was found here, the exit you would take to get to where Marilyn Monroe lived. 
But throughout the research and stuff, I did find something interesting. And I know that it probably shouldn't be a big deal at all. But for some reason, it just stuck on my mind for a while. And Jimmy, you may think that it's really weird, but I wanted to go ahead and bring it up. <laughs> What's that? But, so this victim, after she was found, of course, no one claimed her. She remained a Jane Doe. So they ended up using her remains through a little bit of testing. So you and I have spoken before about this. I don't think it's been on the podcast about a body farm. Yes. So from what I could gather, that's what they used her remains for. Kind of science thing to where they put her somewhere and tried to find a, a different way of her body decomposing. I believe it was related to a college project of yes. some kind. Yes, it is. And at first I thought, I'm glad that something could be, a benefit could come out of this. But then I don't know, I felt a little weird just because that's something that she didn't agree to. And I feel like she didn't agree to get murdered as well. So in one aspect, I can see the good and the benefit from it. But in another aspect, I just, something sticks to me to where I realized that whoever killed her forced that onto her. And it almost mm. seems like after her death, it was forced onto her as well. Yeah. What do you think about this, Gemma? Am I reading too well, much into it? I don't know. I guess it depends on the jurisdiction. Perhaps unclaimed bodies are given to medical science. And one thing that medical science does is take the bodies to a body farm. And for your listeners that don't know what that is, there is a body farm. I believe it's in Kentucky. It is next to a, a university. It's fenced in, but it's not closed over the top. And it's, I believe it's maybe two acres. And what happens in the body farm is that dead bodies are placed in different environments. Some are put under blankets. Some are laid directly on the ground. Some are even hung from trees so that the scientists that go in there can examine what weather and exposure does to a decomposing corpse. And they can make a lot of conclusions about our makeup, how we decompose and what, what situation. Now, I don't know if they purposely put her there because of where she was found or if it was the decision of the town, maybe they don't bury them in a potter's field or unmarked graves, or maybe they don't have the money to bury bodies that are not identified. So it could be well, that they want something productive to come out of it. But I understand yeah. what you're saying. It is a little creepy. Yeah, I think that, and of course, we're looking at different time periods. I'm judging <laughs> people because of something they did back in uh, around 1985, 1986. But nowadays, even if I wanted my organs to be harvested, I would have to agree to that. Yes. I don't right. know, just the thought of them doing that, I don't know. It just seemed like, a, like I said, I see the benefit, my uh -huh. that comes out of it. But it was still really odd to me. And this is the only one that I found. And I don't think that it's a common procedure. And if it is, I'm totally oblivious to it. But it really surprised me. And like I said, I see the positive. But again, 
it's something that has struck me as odd. It was something that it seemed like they were a little proud of back then. Ah, which town was that near? It's near Pioneer, which is in, it's it's a small area in Tennessee. Again, this is the Uh exit that you would take to get to where I've heard Marilyn Monroe grew up. Yeah, so it's not a very populated place. If what I heard is right, I don't think that county probably has a whole lot of money or had it back then. Uh So that could have been something that dealt with. I I don't have all the facts from it, but that was something that I did want to share just because it was something that happened to her. I didn't want to leave it out. Yeah, if some of your listeners can find out, friends, if you want to dig around and find out what the policies are, Near the town of Pioneer, why somebody's unclaimed body would be given to science rather than buried or cremated, that would be an interesting project, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. So we're throwing it out there to you folks. Yes. Prior to us doing this recording, I know that we had a listener, and she's also a fellow podcaster, send in a an email. And what she wanted to tell me was she was questioning on if a suspect in another case could have been linked to our Bible Belt Strangler. And so the case that she's referring to is a Jane Doe, or used to be a Jane Doe. As a Jane Doe, she was known as the Tent Girl, that's T-E-N-T, Tent Girl. And I believe it was 1998, they identified her as Barbara Ann Taylor. And something that's really interesting, the son-in-law to the man who found this Jane Doe's body is the one who ultimately led to her being identified. And because of his huge questioning on this Jane Doe and realizing the problems with Jane Doe's, his name is Todd Matthews. And as many people will know, Todd is one of the founders of the Jane Doe Network. Um, Correct. Currently, yeah, and, and he works with Namus. And he also is someone who Alex and I have communicated with in regards to these Jane Doe's. And when we were scheduling and putting up the press conference, he's a great guy. And he was the reason that this Jane Doe was discovered. I sent the email to you. I forwarded it. And what did you think of it when you saw it? Well, I thought it was increasing. What I don't understand is, I don't see the year she was killed. Do you happen to know? Yes. I did a little research right before we jumped on this recording. She was killed around 1968. So a Uh, long time prior to our jingles. I see. Yeah. Yeah, because those were early 80s. So we're talking... 12 to 15 years difference. Yeah. The, other, the, the other thing I thought was interesting was that it appeared that the person of interest was traveling with a circus and yeah. that she pro- possibly could have been as well. And there was a comment in the email about that would make it likely that the person of interest, the murderer, could have also been at truck stops. And it never occurred to me that, I guess, circus travelers, unless they're on a train, if they're in trucks, they stop at truck stops. Yeah, I agree. I think that from the knowledge that I have, it's probably unlikely that the cases are related. 
And the reason uh-huh. I think that is because when they came back with the DNA, they believed that the person of interest in the case was Barbara's husband, of course. He died in 1987, a few years after our Jane Doe's were all murdered. Right. Now, Correct. the interesting thing is he did die of cancer. So he didn't die of old age, per se. One of the interesting things that I think probably brought this case to Tammy was that this could have been a reason why the murder stopped. It's a very interesting thing, and I don't think that she's contacted Todd yet about it, and I definitely will, and just to get his input. But I think that a big takeaway from this is, you're absolutely right, Gemma, there are other professions that besides being a standard run-of-the-mill truck driver that utilizes truck stops. For circus people or you know people who pull fair equipment, different types of people like that, it just broadens the scope on what type of person in their profession utilizes right. truck stops. Now, does she know who he is, who the suspect is, person of interest? Yeah, we did have his name. He was Barbara's husband, who was the victim. And like I said, he died in 87, so they never were able to convict him or anything like that. But are you not permitted to share who he was, what his actual name was? I could, to be honest with you. I don't have it in front of me. And two, I'm afraid to put out too many names. I agree. Yeah, but if listeners want to look more into this, if they just Google Tent Girl, They'll find Barbara Ann Taylor's case or read more okay. about it there. Um, okay. It's very interesting. And it has widened the scope on what type of person utilizes truck stops. Right. I think we're not finished with the redhead murders yet, Shane. Oh, yeah? I just think there's going to be more. I just think people are just going to find more information and send it yeah. into you. I agree. I know that we're going to definitely hear more about Lisa Nichols' case. We're going to definitely hear more about Elizabeth's mom. We're going to hear more about, hopefully, other kids and other classes working into these murders. Even a month ago, I was on a TV show in Kentucky. The TV show was called Hey, Kentucky. And they wanted me to talk about the Jane Doe's and the Jane Doe found in Kentucky. And so the conversation continues. So I do have hope about that. And I hope that us ending the series now doesn't make people feel like we're giving up or we're not going to continue looking or exploring. But just as a podcasting standpoint, from this episode and the last one, there's been such a long space just because mm-hmm. of not having enough information to put out a whole episode. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Contact. With the help of Kayla and Gemma, we were able to reach out to a sheriff. This sheriff was the one who worked on the Jane Doe that we most recently just talked about, the one found near the exit for Pioneer. He is actually a doctor now. It was a long shot because we weren't sure if this was going to be him because he would have been a trooper back in the day. He did return my message and agreed to talk to us but that's been a good week or so now and i haven't heard back i don't have an interview with him yet but hopefully if he is willing to talk i'd love to still have that conversation and maybe put out a little special episode with that 
I think that's a good plan. That's a good plan, Shane. You can always yeah. come back to it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so what's your the, surprise? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was getting ready to lead into it. Okay. So, at the end of Alex's school year, he had his student write an essay for their final. And in the essay, he wanted them to talk about what they learned from researching the serial killer for their class. And so he sent me some quotes that he thought myself and our listeners, and of course you, Gemma, who they all love, we all thought that we would find enjoyment out of it or find some insight. Now, keep in mind that when the students wrote this, they had no idea that I would be reading it in a podcast. So I just want to read some of them and just so that we can see what kids in a high school class thought about researching this case. Give me just a second. Here we go. When I walked into this class, I did not expect to leave feeling sadness and remorse because the school year was over. This class taught me more than general education. It was about family, togetherness, and most importantly, understanding the world. Being a teenager can be so hard, and the world makes our problems seem so small and unheard. Personally, I feel now I can move a mountain if I really wanted to. Wow. Failure doesn't seem so scary anymore. That's probably my favorite sentence. Failure doesn't seem so scary anymore. Anymore, that's a wonderful attitude. It is. I often find myself thinking about the woman behind the grave. They were somebody's lover, friend, and mother. That's the part that really hurts me the most. Because for years without a trace, and then no one is even looking for them. What I learned from this project is to, quote, be the change you want to see in this world, unquote. Education needs to be reevaluated for the sake of our future. We are going to make the world better and our education better in our own way, all because one person believed that a bunch of rowdy teenagers could be something great now instead of in the distant future. I am socially awkward, and this class forced me out of my comfort zone. I had to work and talk with others I did not know for the first time. I learned the importance of advocating for those without a voice. Just because people live differently than most does not mean they deserve to be forgotten. Just because we are young doesn't mean we are good for nothing. We are just as capable of bettering our community as an adult. Being a teen doesn't make you stupid. Our entire lives, we have been told we have to memorize instead of actually experiencing things. As teenagers, we are often treated as if we cannot achieve anything great, unlike those who came before us. Now I know that even I can make great changes in the world. I knew I was capable of achieving, but I thought I had to grow older to actually achieve it. I learned that not everyone has had the privilege of having a good life like I have. These women were still people, whether prostitutes or runaways. 
they were still people, and no one deserves to die alone. I learned not to assume that everything is true. Everyone deserves a family. Not every case is simple and easy to solve like the ones we see on TV. Just because someone lives in a way that you don't agree with doesn't mean they don't matter. You have to learn to share. The best time to make a difference is in the present. We didn't necessarily do it to catch the killer. We did it for the victim. No matter how far away the goal seems or how silly it is, there's always a way to achieve it. I learned more from this semester of sociology than I did in the entire three years of middle school. Age doesn't matter when people are seeking justice. I learned more about the way education should be than I ever thought possible. I learned more from a serial killer in one semester than most people do in their whole lives. It doesn't matter who you are, man, woman, young or old, because if you are doing something for a just cause the right way, then it really doesn't matter how big you are or the color of your skin. I wonder how the blood families of the victims are going to react whenever the remaining identities of these victims are discovered and they learn that we think of the victims as their family. What a day that will be. And this is the final one, Jimmo. I never thought I would have a sister. I have a 10-year-old brother, but after my parents' divorce, I never thought about any other siblings. However, after this case, I actually learned that I have not one, not two, but six sisters. And most of them are prostitutes. But wow. I'm all right with that. Yeah. But I am all right with that. I learned each victim is my sister, and it may sound odd to those that did not work on the case, but to me and my class, they are our family. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's beautiful. I hope they Isn't all got Yeah. Amazing. I had a feeling that all of them did to me. <laughs> I would. I'd give those, Alex, give those kids an A. All right, kids. I bet he we're did. going to get A's for you, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I hope they listen to this. Oh, I'm sure they will. It seems like this isn't something that they will forget. I think uh-huh. they'll continue to look at things and research more and continue throughout their I, years to always look back at this. I wish that I had gotten into forensics and criminal justice when I was much younger. I love being a teacher, but, and that brought me to this, but I could be teaching criminal justice. I don't know. Anyway, Shane, are you going to give your listeners a couple little hints about what's coming up? Or no? Yeah, I thought that we should talk briefly about it, just to give okay. a little thing to hold on to. Okay. So, for the next series, which will start here soon, I'm sure all of our listeners know that you were featured in the Netflix docuseries, The Keepers. And, of course, the series covered your work on Sister Kathy's case, along with Abby. You and I went to CrimeCon earlier in the year to talk about Sister Kathy's murder case and to answer a lot of people's questions. And I know that you and I speak a lot about the things that we know since the documentary aired. And of course, there were things that weren't released in the documentary. And with all the questions that we had from people at CrimeCon, our idea for the second series is to dive a little bit more surrounding the people surrounding the case for Sister Kathy's murder. Yeah. What else would you like to add about it, Juma? Do you want to talk about the individual that you're going to feature very soon? That why don't wait on that one. Yes, let's leave his name out, but it is a he. It, It is a he. Yes, and it's someone who a lot of people believe is very fishy, and they want more information, and we have more information, and we want to find even more information, but it's something that I'm very excited for. I'm hoping that you are too, Gemma, Um, because a lot of people have asked, is there going to be a new season of The Keepers, and what is your answer to that? The short answer is no. The explanation or clarification is that if and when we get the answers, and I do think we will, I'm very confident about that, most likely in Maryland, there would be a press conference that somebody, some important person in the government will have a press conference and will reveal what has been found out. Now, that being said, We don't know when that might happen, but we will keep everybody posted. The other thing I want to say is that 
for those of you that are on the Keepers official group page, you know that I asked a couple weeks ago for you to submit questions because Shane and I are going to do a Keepers Q&A, maybe a couple, because I know there's a lot you want to know about. Some of it you've been asking about for over a year and I've kept answering it, but I guess you want more information. So if I can answer it, I will. If I'm allowed to answer it, I will. And so I guess Shane will be the master of ceremonies and he can make comments and I can answer questions maybe that he doesn't know the answers to. So that's coming up soon. Shane? Yes. And also let's let our listeners know that you are officially a co-host. Yeah. You're no longer just the guest host. You're no longer just the, yeah. And I'm super excited about it. I will be doing those commercials, you know, about Ed (laughs) that you guys all thought was really funny last year. So we're going to continue. And I want you to know that if I'm the co-host, Teddy is too, because he's right here with me. And the whole time I'm talking, he can hear Shane's voice and has no idea who I'm talking to. So, of course, he's been wanting his attention, and he's sitting on my lap with his head, like, on the phone. So, Teddy's part of the Gemma deal. What I love about Teddy, and this is a little funny thing that a lot of people don't realize, I think, is you told me that people normally recognize him before they recognize you from the documentary. Somebody said... I was walking him on the street. Hey, is that the dog from the keepers? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I think they thought I was like a hired dog walker. Oh, I'm I, sure. We should have a fan club for Teddy. If somebody wants to start that, I'll help you with that. He could have his own Facebook page and his fans, and he would just be eating that up, I'm sure. But anyway, <laughs> so we're fine, and Shane's okay, and... We're really excited to be doing some stuff together with you guys, okay? Yeah, and I'm looking forward to it, too. As I was preparing this episode to release yesterday, I received a phone call confirming fingerprints have come back, confirming the identity of the Campbell County Jane Doe. This Jane Doe, who we now know as Tina Marie Farmer, is the woman found north of Knoxville, Tennessee, and just south of where the Barberville, Kentucky Jane Doe was found. In this episode, you heard me describe this Jane Doe to Gemma as being found near an exit where the locals say Marilyn Monroe grew up. To clarify, I have not been able to confirm that information about Marilyn, and it's likely it could have been a parent or grandparent. Twelve weeks ago, I spoke to Lisa Plummer, briefly. She shared with me a photo of her sister, who had been missing for many years. Her sister was a redhead, and she explained her family fell out of contact with her many years ago and never heard from her again. I do not have a direct contact with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Trying to work with them myself on this series has been frustrating, to say the least. So I sent the information about this Jane Doe to the TBI via a tip line. I've never heard back, but as of yesterday, they confirmed that this is the Campbell County Jane Doe. It feels like yesterday I first traveled to West Memphis, Arkansas. I will leave you in this episode with some audio from that very first stop along this crazy and amazing and depressing journey. I hope you take away a lot from this series 
and I hope that forever these victims will remain in your heart. Nine episodes later, we are all walking away with six new sisters, and they were prostitutes. Hey everyone, so I am currently 20 miles of West Memphis, and if you listen to the Redhead Murders series on my podcast, Out of the Shadows, you will have, we'll ring a bell for you, because this is the location where our very first victim was found. A year after her remains were discovered, they realized her name was, but it was, yes, her name is Lisa Nichols, and I'm in the current location right off the interstate where her body was found by a hitchhiker, basically. He was walking up this on-ramp to get back onto the interstate. It's a little windy and it's cold. It's really muddy. But I wanted to take you guys out here and show you around. Is that it for tonight? That's all, Gemma. Okay, Shane. See you guys later. All right. Bye, Gemma. Bye-bye. Bye. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.